Hello everybody and welcome to Pod on the Tyne, a brand new podcast brought to you by The Athletic. Uh, my name's Taylor Payne, I'm going to be your host and I am joined as ever by the wonderful Mr George Culkin and the fantastic Mr Chris Woff. How are we doing lads, are we okay? Well wonderful and fantastic. Delighted to be here and delighted let's, to have this podcast. Let's see how long that lasts. <laughs> yes, <laughs> I'll give it two minutes. <laughs> what we're going to do today is we're going to uh, be talking about the Newcastle United team of the decade. 2010 to 2019, and you chaps have just finished off uh, an article for that. Is that correct? That is correct. I think the reason for it is that every team has done it, and it's to do with the American market as well, isn't it, Chris? Yeah, I think. so I think all the teams in the US as well, so for, for American football, for basketball, every single team covered on The Athletic has a team of the decade, um, or every single team which has a dedicated reporter has, has a team of the decade. Yeah. And we, we depressingly had to pick Newcastle United, yeah, unfortunately. It, it yeah. sounds like a great idea, doesn't it, on the face of it? But then you realise that you've got to write one about Newcastle United. Yes, and it's not been <laughs> the most uh, blissful decade in uh, in Newcastle's history, I think it's fair to say. I mean, there's been a lot of good players, but you know, there's also been relegation. There's been a lot of relegation campaigns, and there's been kind of not, not a lot of life-affirming stuff at the same time. So you, we've had to pick quite a lot of players who've just sort of hung around for a while. Yeah. As well as being players who've who've been decent, so I think I'm sure there'll be a few controversial picks in there, but we've we've done our best. So between you, you've you've came up with this uh, this eleven. Um, just to clarify, I've had no involvement in the choosing of these players. <laughs> you so coward! If you, you absolute <laughs> coward! <laughs> no, no, I'm, I'm washing my hands of this completely right now. If you want to get in touch with George or Chris on Twitter and tell them that they're wrong uh, and the reasons why Danny Guthrie should have been selected, sorry, spoiler. Um, <laughs> please feel free to do that, but don't aim any of that at me because this isn't my choice. And I must just say before we go any further, very disappointed that James Perch doesn't get a look in there. Ah, oh, Perchy. I mean, he's like the honourable sort of team mascot almost, I suppose. <laughs> I'm sure he'd be water, really, the sure water he'd boy. Be delighted with that. <laughs> delighted. Uh, right, so we're going to start at the beginning. Also, I just want to mention as well, you've picked this uh, team in a 3-4-1-2 th- formation. Have we? Is that right? Oh, yeah, that, was that, that, which, that was me. Which, that was from Chris. what I can remember, is a formation we never played at any point over the last decade. Go I on, mean, Chris. you're being nitpicky now, right? <laughs> <laughs> so have we have we picked a formation basically to... Ch- to, to shoehorn players in, To yeah. shoehorn players Well, it's essentially... Yeah. Part of the issue with this, and you, you, there will be debates, and people will undoubtedly disagree, and that's that's part of the brilliance of this. But it's whether you go, people will have different ideas as to what the thing should be in the team of decade. Should it be how good a player someone was individually, not necessarily at Newcastle, but in general, how good a player was? Should it be what they did for Newcastle? Should it be a combination of those? And so you've got to factor in all, all of these different elements. There's a good argument to say that you could just pick the team that finished fifth, and then that would be that because yeah. that's been the one quote-unquote successful season and then that was finishing fifth I mean you could just pick that team yeah um but then you also I suppose you also have to you do then disregard a lot of players if you do that don't you you do you also have to put things in context so like the last three years have been very important you know under Rafa the last three years were very important yeah at the end of it, what have Newcastle achieved? Well, they've got promoted and then they've stayed up twice, effectively, finishing 10th, okay. but The interesting thing about the formation as well is that I've written a few bits over the last few weeks, including uh, on, on basically how Newcastle's strength at the moment lies at centre-back and they've arguably got more depth there than they have ever have done before, which is part of the reason why they're playing with three at the back. Only one of the current team actually featuring there, but you could make an argument for any three of the current six centre-backs, never mind the ones who are already in there. So that's yeah. the sort of... Yeah, it, potentially. It, yeah. It, it's, it's, a, it's an issue of... I, I think that 
pe- people will disagree with this team, but I don't think there are too many positions. Personally, this is just, just how I feel that you could say categorically you've massively missed someone out there because they were so brilliant. I don't think Newcastle have had a lot of good players over the last yeah. decade, but I don't think they've had anyone who or that many players who really, if you look through the history of the club, you would say they are really pushing to be in like the team of all time. That the, sort of thing. the thing that Chris wrote, I've found very sort of interesting because that, you know, all the time that I've been watching the club uh, and reporting on them, going from a team that is renowned for attacking football, you know, the f- yeah. famous entertainers, all that sort of thing. And, you know, now they're renowned for absolutely the opposite. I'll tell you what we'll do then, lads, in that case, we'll dive in and we'll get stuck in and we'll start. Who have we chosen for number one for our goalkeeper? Goalkeeper in goal, Tim Krul. I think it's worth mentioning Tim Krul's debut. What do we think? At Palermo? It was a long, long time ago. Yeah, so that wasn't in this decade, so that's a... But, um, yes, he made his de- debut at Palermo at the age of 17, I think he was. Yeah. Very young. And, um, no, and had he had great reactions. He was a great reaction keeper. And um, he was the keeper for the fifth place finish. He was, yeah. And yes. I, I mean, he was someone who was there for, for a good few seasons, and I think... Barring a serious knee injury, he probably would have been Newcastle United's number one, arguably even now, but certainly for yeah, a few years yeah. afterwards. And I think that that knee injury in 2015-16 really sort of affected him and really and was when his Newcastle United career started to go downhill. But for three or four years before that, he was among some of the best goalkeepers in the Premier League. I remember that game against Spurs where he made that five is, or six yeah. world-class saves. Yeah, That was a ridiculous yeah. performance. Apparently still holds the record for the most saves by a Premier League goalkeeper in a single game, which... I mean, it's, is that a good stuff? Is that a good thing to have or not? <laughs> I mean, he also came over here and he, he settled in the region. He fell in love and married a Geordie girl. They've got a Geordie daughter and he's, you know, he's at Norwich now, but, um, you know, still think, feels that the North East is home and has talked about coming back, coming back and moving here when he's, uh, when he's finished playing. And I think we love that as people yes, from the region. We, we kind of love it when people come here, understand what it's all about and, and fall in love with it. And no, he's a good lad and he was a, he was a really good keeper. Absolutely right. Let's move on to our second player on the list. This is our first of three uh, centre-backs and we're going for the current captain, Jamal Lascelles. Chris, do you want to tell me uh, what the thinking was behind this? I think this one may be controversial in some quarters. I mean, at the moment, we aren't going to see him again in the Castle shirt until the start of 2020. He is out injured with a knee injury. But if you look at the last three seasons in particular, three and a bit seasons, he really has grown. He came in, uh, initially was signed and then went set back on loan to Nottingham Forest. Played bizarrely as a left-back at Man City, if I remember correctly, in the 6-1. Yes, uh, yeah, when he was very rarely played uh, under Steve McLaren. And then obviously became iconic for when he, he walked off the pitch at Everton and said, this is shit, and then did the interview down. He actually said, nobody gives an F. But that was not that was an important moment. And um, when Rafa came in, he, uh, you know, he recognised his leadership. He was very young, but it was, you know, that team that got relegated, there were some really, really good players on that team, yeah. but it was not a good team. And he stood out for being somebody who cared, who had that leadership and then played, yeah, a vital part in that promotion campaign and then the two campaigns in Newcastle you know Newcastle staying up I think with when LaSalle, when Lascelles came in I think we thought you know a big tall strong lad young English defender let's see what he brings I don't think anybody was kind of expecting what happened with him you know he, was, he wasn't a marquee signing by any stretch of the imagination um, and when he came in for somebody like Rafa Benitez to spot that potential is I think that's quite astonishing, really, isn't it? And to spot that leadership quality that he had, I think that's really yeah. impressive. I yeah. think it is, and I think he actually is someone who, in a perverse sort of way, benefited from Newcastle going down. If Newcastle had stayed in the Premier League, 
that following season would he have played as frequently we can only suspect that may he may have done he may not have done but to have that full season the championship captaining to really get that authority understand gain the leadership really understand the role i think that was crucial for him and it's been important at his development at newcastle moving on to our next player uh the curly haired central defending maestro himself mr fabrizio colaccini george do you want to take this one very much a cult cult figure um I don't know why you're laughing at me. That's not fair. But someone who came into the club and um, struggled for a year, good season, I think, really. Yeah. I mean, in that madness of the season that Absolutely. Kevin Keegan ends up leaving. Uh, I mean, everybody struggled. Um, and then and then what followed, he was an Argentina international. I'm not sure how much Keegan knew about him um, when he arrived. Mm. Um, but by the end of his time at Newcastle, had become you know become a firm favorite he was that sort of cult hero he was captain at that point very strong in the dressing room chris what's your thoughts about about colo i mean he's almost came to england at a time just before what you have now where obviously it's in vogue to have center backs who were very good on the ball and i think at that period there was there wasn't too many that a few of the 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 biggest teams had them but colicini came in struggled that first year and i think a lot of people just thought this guy is is just not going to make it in english football but the championship season really hardened him up over the next few years i think for a period he was in the top three or four center backs probably in the premier league for for, for a short period certainly the 2011 12 season and he eventually took the armband team of the year for that for that particular season so well he was just i mean he was just and and he's speaking to i spoke to mike williamson about him and he 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 said he's the best center back he's ever played with and he said that it's interesting because a lot of people looked at him and said he's not really a captaincy sort of figure and he isn't that sort of churchillian leader but what he what he represented in the dressing room how he acted everything that he did his professionalism for mike williamson he said that he was our leader in the dressing room and it's interesting to hear that from the insular perspective of the dressing room we see it from the outside and don't necessarily see him as fist pumping sort of as as lascelles can be it's different with college he's a different sort of leadership in full flow with that sort of hair bouncing around and um again played a huge part in the in the fifth place in the fifth place season no really good really good player any particular standout moments from Colaccini I mean my personal favourite slash most amusing one was when he broke a vertebrae in his back trying to do an overhead kick in his own corner you find that amusing well not amusing but I find it astonishing and also very much in line with him as a person yeah our next uh, player on the list is a local lad um We've got him in as a centre-half, but he's also played at left-back a long time as well. It's Mr. Paul Dummett. George, do you want to start with this one? Yeah, so Paul Dummett, I, I kind of think, maybe until this season, because he's been he's actually been left out in the last few games, but you always see his worth when he's not in the team, Absolutely, is, is, yeah, is yeah. what I think. And he's the kind of player who's 7 out of 10 every week. It's been a, it's been a very slow burn, his career. Um but it got to the stage where Chris and I went to see Rafa in Liverpool a few weeks ago and we were talking about, uh, he was asked a question about the most underrated players that he's ever managed and he singled out Paul Dummett and who was the other, who was the Luke Liverpool player? Uh, Lucas Lever. Lucas Lever. And right. I just thought that was, I thought that was kind of fascinating. He's not a fashionable fashionable footballer. He's a defender who defends. Yeah. As a left back, he was very limited in, in that sense. He wasn't going to get up the pitch and whip the ball in or anything like that but very solid at what you did and absolutely dependable yeah. and there's a lot to be said for that yeah. very unassuming lad uh really good really nice and and just solid and yeah. every team needs a solid seven out of ten player and i think he he's very much fills that role in this team absolutely i mean i've met him a couple of times he seems like a smashing 
a smashing guy. Um, and I think he's, he came in for some really unfair criticism early on in his career. He, he wasn't playing regularly and he was chucked in at the deep end a few times against Man City. I think he made his debut against Man City and just thrown in. We got absolutely stuffed on yeah. it. was 5-0. And, and Alan Pardew famously uh, said that he probably wasn't good enough yeah. to play in the Premier League. Now He's proved him wrong. He has, absolutely. I mean, it's a, it's an achievement, isn't it, from, from Paul Dummett's point of view? Oh, yeah, and I think that the one thing that, that I've always told about Paul Dummett is that you look at the academy lads, including the ones who are in his age group, who a lot of people said are more talented, a lot of them could have become, in theory, very good footballers based on talent alone. Yeah. And they laughed, I spoke to him earlier this season, and he basically, they, they laughed at him when he went alone to Gates and said, what are, you, what are you going there for? What are you going to, when they were conference side, why are you going there? And he went because he wanted to play first team football, he wanted to gain experience, and he went he went elsewhere, he went to St. Marin, and eventually he just persevered, and he had that application as well as the talent to be able to get in the team. Yes, he is limited in a lot of ways, but he also uh, is able to put in a slide and tackle. Now, there is something beautiful about the way that Paul Dummett puts in a slide and tackle it's, it's going out of the game almost now but you just it, it's almost as if the game just stops and you just see that moment where he's thought I'm going to go in for this now and he just slides across the ground and wins it and there was a one actually against Bournemouth where re- really where they were breaking down the right second half I think Bournemouth and he slid in and took him out so that, that that's Paul Dummett sort of at his best I think yeah. we've now come to uh uh a young, well, he's not young anymore, is he? A Scotsman, but he's not actually a Scotsman. So he's neither <laughs> young nor a Scotsman. Uh, Matt Ritchie. Now, I think a lot of the reasons why Matt Ritchie might be in this team, and forgive me if I'm wrong, are similar to the reasons why Paul Dummett's in this team. Uh, yes, he's stayed here for quite a long time. And no, I mean, no, I think that's harsh. I mean, I'm happy to, I mean, you, you, Chris, wrote a, a great thing about Ritchie earlier this season, and there's, um, there's a fabulous Twitter. Uh, clip on Twitter that you can find in fact you can probably remember which game it was but it was against Spurs away Spurs away so Newcastle won that game Christian Atsu has cleared the ball as Newcastle are defending and instead of Matt Ritchie coming up to Christian Atsu and shaking his hand or <laughs> high-fiving him he just kicks him up the backside <laughs> yeah. for no reason yeah. that I can see whatsoever and then there's another clip which I think is in the same game where it's in the 90th minute yeah. and he is racing up and down the yeah. pitch. And I love that about Matt Ritchie. I mean, we have a word up here, Raj. He's yeah. a Raj. He's a little angry man. Yeah. And he takes that anger onto the pitch every game. And he he sets the tempo for the team. He drives the team. He keeps it going. And he runs himself to a standstill every Absolutely, match. Yeah. He doesn't score enough goals. He doesn't put enough crosses in. But he sets the tempo for the yeah. team. And I love that. I love I th- that about him. I think he lifts players around him as well. He kind of, you know, whether through sheer fear or, or whatever, you know, that he's, he's constantly barking orders. You can hear him on the pitch. He's very vocal. He's the kind of player you'd hate to play five-a-side against. Oh, God. Because he would just be at your ankles constantly yeah. pushing you into the boards, causing all kinds of problems. But I think... We, we forget about the impact he had in that season in the championship as well. I think he, he had a wonderful season that season. He scored a, a good few goals, yeah. a lot of assists and stuff like that. And I think, without being too unfair to him, I think that's probably kind of his level now as he's getting a little bit older. He, he could really do a fantastic job for somebody in the championship. But I have to say, I do miss him when he's not there, when he's not playing. I think the team miss him. I mean, actually, in recent weeks, they've been doing okay. But I do think that just that drive, that it's like it's an infectious intensity. It's what, what I always use about... Richie, you can just see when he's on the pitch that suddenly 
everyone else is sort of their, their levels raised because yeah. they know that he's not going to accept anything less than that. And I mean, he's been in the press box in the in the last few weeks watching the games because obviously he's been injured and it's it's it's, it's hilarious watching because you, you get sometimes where players aren't playing and obviously they're, they're a little bit reserved. Richie is exactly how he is in the pitch. He's slamming his fist. I remember when Matt, uh, Matty Longstaff scored, he jumped up and he was celebrating with everyone in the press box. That's, for him, he just he just lives and breathes it. And in terms of uh, other clips of, of Richie, there's a brilliant one from the, the Fulham 4-0, the last game of last season where Cher um, scores and the celebrating and Richie just keeps slapping him in the face and eventually Cher has to stop him and point his face to stop doing that because this has got beyond the point of being funny but it's just that is just Matt Richie um, and Rafa for the benefit of this team the deco Rafa says about him he's mad but in a positive way and, and that's not a bad not a bad description is it I'll never ever forget that penalty that got choked off against Burton Albion as well um, I would imagine he was seething <laughs> about that the most ridiculous decision I think I've ever seen on a football I think pitch. he wakes up seething <laughs> That's his waking state. Yes, it's I just that's his simmering north. anger. Yeah, I think so, yeah. I Excellent. remember actually when we when Newcastle trained in the Republic of Ireland, I don't think it was last summer, I think it was the summer before, um, I was across covering them at the time I was working for, for the Chronicle and Journal and I had to Facebook Live. I think you may have joined in this Facebook Live actually, George, and it helped with the commentary. And I was wearing sunglasses because when I started the Facebook Live, it was it was bright and sunny. By the end of it, it, it wasn't. And at one point, Matt Ritchie just turned around and he went, take those bloody glasses off. What are you wearing them for? And just in the middle of this video, and I was like, we're streaming live. Like, I don't care. <laughs> that is just Matt Ritchie. Just will tell you on it. It's just brilliant. Constantly angry about everything. <laughs> that was a bit better as an anecdote. Yeah, uh, I'm, I'm slightly improving. Yeah. As we're, getting there, we're getting there. We're getting there. Uh, let's move on. Uh, centre midfielder. Um, we've got the uh, enigmatic, handsome Frenchman, Mr. Johan Kabay. Let's start with Chris. Memories of Johan. Well, in terms of someone who can run a midfield, can can play the ball forward, can can pick out that pass, Newcastle haven't had anyone quite like him since he left or for the few years before he was there. I think that in terms of playmakers of the decade, there's without doubt he was probably among the first two or three picks I would have had in this team. Yeah. Uh, that 2011-12 season, I remember there was a lot of debate when he came in that summer because uh, Newcastle had let Kevin Nolan leave. Joey Barton was was in the process of potentially leaving as well. And Newcastle got him for a snip for and a half. Malini just won the league with, with Lille, but, but Graham Coy was really the success story of the Graham Coy era and he came in and immediately just had such an impact. And you speak to the to the players who played with him, they just say you knew that the Kabai would fight if you made a run one of the attackers, that the Kabai would find you. And he's had the I mean, everyone say he was handsome. He was it was almost like he, he was the complete package. He was he was obviously this handsome sort of footballer, but that was also the way he played and he yeah. he was just brilliant to watch he was a very stylish player wasn't he and yeah. I think he, he was always looking forwards he had great vision um, like you say he did I think he was captain a few times as well he captained the team on occasion took penalties took free kicks he's kind of like that kid at school that everybody hates you know the one <laughs> yeah. that, that, that he's good looking all the lasses fancy him and he does everything takes throw-ins corners the whole lot but I mean it, he, he formed a formidable partnership didn't he with, with Czech Teote in the middle of that midfield and like you say that 11-12 season there wasn't many players in the Premier League who were better than him. No, he was great to watch. No, he did, and he had he had everything. I remember talking to sort of Alan Pardew around, kind of around that whole era, and there was a sense of you know warning signs to come because he said that what Newcastle were really doing was signing rogues, and he didn't mean that in a sort of horrible way. But what he meant was there was a reason why Newcastle were able to sign players for. Kabai was four and a half million, but they were able yeah. to get Sissoko for a snip and they got other players. Ben Arthur. Ben Arthur, the classic. And um, they they signed a lot of talent. They signed a lot of players who other big clubs had looked at and could afford to wait. 
you know, so big clubs can afford to wait to see how a player did in the Premier League and then pick them up if they did well at Newcastle, uh, you know, or elsewhere. And I think, you know, Newcastle sort of became, unfortunately, were that sort of stepping stone club um, because it wasn't all sweetness and light with Kabai. I think he was a sort of tricky, tricky character, but on form and committed and... You know, on those good days, he was he was a fabulous footballer and and great great to watch. He provided us with some iconic moments as well. The the free kick against Man United stands out to me as being yeah just such a wonderful moment. I remember the noise inside St James's Park when that ball hit the bar and then came back up and nestled in the corner. Just incredible. That's the stuff you want, isn't it? Was it West Ham away just before he left as well? He scored. He scored two free kicks or something. He scored twice in that game. I think that was just before yeah. he left in, in that January. I mean, that was his last kick of a ball for Newcastle. Yeah. Was that second free kick that went in off the post? Yeah, I mean, from dead ball situations, I don't think Newcastle have anyone quite like him since. And when George was saying about him essentially going on strike, he did. But I think what says a lot about Kabai was that he had gone on strike, and obviously people were angry about that. But as soon as he was, he hadn't left. There was no question that he was going to come back in the team. Nobody within the team and nobody, none of the fans would question that because he was undoubtedly the best player in that position. Once mm. when Newcastle still had him, I think that says a lot about the ability he had. And to be fair on him, there was a lot of players Newcastle signed who maybe wanted to leave for for what they would see as bigger and better things, but didn't necessarily produce. I think Kabai did produce during the time yeah. he, that he was there, and so therefore he sort of did earn that move to PSG. Obviously, it didn't work out from the end, but I think he did actually earn that. So the moral of the story there is: if you're good, you can get away with pretty much whatever you want. <laughs> I think that's pretty what yeah. I think that's what we're getting out yeah. there. Yeah. Uh, let's move on to his midfield uh, partner in that 11-12 season, and obviously, sadly, no longer with us, Mister Czech Tiote. What have we got to say about this man? An absolute machine, a warrior on the pitch, not a scorer, not a great goal scorer, but a scorer of great goals. <laughs> and again, a snip, an absolute snip, unbelievable. And we didn't see enough of him in this form, but I would say that um, in that season when. Uh, alongside Kabai, there's never been, a, you know, I've, I've rarely seen a more complete sort of destructive player like that um, who could tackle, who f- was full of energy. And he, it kind of, it went, it went away that. It didn't, it didn't last for long enough, did it? But God, he was good. And on his day, he was one of the best in the league. Oh, it was fabulous. At that particular was fabulous, yeah. And um, he was, he, he I mean, I remember the European campaign. I'm going to rival Chris for this with this anecdote. It's just a, it's just a nice, it's just a nice little personal memory I've got because I've got this picture on my phone of me playing air hockey on my iPad with Czech Tioti on the back of a plane going to Europe. There was something really unprecious about Newcastle in Europe because I know Alan Pardew is a very divisive uh, kind of figure and stuff and polarizing figure and that's perfectly understandable but um he was very unprecious about that european campaign and the press were very much part of it anyway so on the back of the plane that one time i was playing playing uh, hockey with czech and he was just a, a kind of lovely um a lovely fella too but on 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 form he was just he was sort of unstoppable He's the player who every single player used to hate playing against a trainer, though, because yeah. everyone would say he was exactly how he was. Yeah. There was never, he yeah. never ever stopped. You, you couldn't have a sort of training session whereby it's we're going to take it lightly today because as soon as you turned your back, check to it would go in and he would, he would just snap people on the train. But that's just, that's just how he is. Yeah. And oh, sorry, how he was. Um, and in terms of, of Teotihuacan as well, I think that 
I remember speaking to someone at the club a few years ago, and this was towards the end of his time at Newcastle, and they basically said that the issue became with Teotihuacan is that he started to think he was more of a footballer than he was, and at that period whereby actually it was about doing the destructive stuff, but almost when Kabai left, he almost tried to take some of that more yeah. offensive yeah. Uh, capabilities onto himself, and that was not his he strength. And when he, yeah, and he couldn't do that, and that, and I think that they did lose his way a bit at Newcastle, but there was certainly about a 12, 18 month period where. Arsenal and the likes were interested and certainly yeah. because I think he was the best defensive midfielder in England at that time. Yeah, and we can't talk about him without mentioning the goal against Arsenal, can we? I mean, <laughs> just an incredible moment. Just astonishing in the fact that Newcastle came from 4-0 down, but at the same time, the best he's ever struck a ball <laughs> in the years that he was here. And when you see that just curving away as it goes away from Szczesny and nestles in the corner, it's just incredible and then the celebration as well is just The, ce- the, the celebration was extraordinary everyone piling piling on. Well that is definitely the celebration of a man who doesn't score many goals <laughs> isn't it? let's be honest. It's incredible, I think he couldn't believe it as much as we couldn't you know uh, we're going to move on a little bit now um, and we're going to move on to our next player which is the mercurial huffy Frenchman uh, with magic in his boots, Mr. Hatton Ben Arthur Yeah and I don't know whether he deserves to be in this team I mean, I right. argue the case that he controversial. Well, I mean, I feel that about a few of them, but um, I think he deserves a place in this team for what he re- represents as a, more than what he actually was, which was a very gifted player, but who did score a couple of really iconic goals. Um, but I think he was also a liability, and he could be a liability. And there were times when. Um, his place in the team negatively affected mm. the team. And I know for a fact that as a personality, he was very, very difficult. And I think that's been subsequently shown mm. by what's happened when he's gone elsewhere. A flawed character. He is a flawed say. character. But again, when he had the ball at his feet and when he was moving forward, something very special. Yeah. And he did come to represent, you know, there was that famous banner where it's Ben Arthur's face and the word hope. Yeah. And he did represent, he represented that to a yeah. lot of Newcastle fans. And I completely and utterly respect that and see that and, and get it. He became, he became a cult iconic yeah. figure, possibly. I mean, I, th- I think there was this sense of it could have been more, you know, it could have been more, it could have been better if he'd had a different manager, you know, dot, dot, dot. But I think, yeah. I think he's had that sort of reputation wherever he's gone throughout his career. Yeah. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think this is where the debate comes down to what someone's actually done for Newcastle and how good a player they are. And this is, if if, if you're going for how yeah. good a player he is, undoubtedly in my mind, he has to be in the team in terms of actual talent. Did he produce it for Newcastle? No, he didn't far too infrequently. I, I remember it used to be funny watching the touch on the touchline when he was playing on the left and, and he would be on Pardew's side and the whole of that half, Pardew would just shout at him. And then he'd flip, you could see just he'd felt liberated during the second half because he was on the far side of the pitch. So Alan Pardew couldn't shout at him the whole game from because him, yeah. he just wasn't, whatever the instructions were he was meant to have he just wouldn't listen to them he would do whatever he wanted but I think he was also a player you had to just allow to do whatever he wanted I mean he's on the left of this formation this team just to fit him in ideally you'd probably want him as a number 10 but yeah I think it's as George says more what he represents and in terms of talent I don't think Newcastle have had a more talented player over the last decade than hadn't been offer okay we'll move on then um I also Perez is taking your number 10 spot in the team again a player who maybe a few people might not think Deserves a position, but I would say in the last couple of years, his his performances have, have probably merited that number 10 spot. What do we think, Chris? Yeah, and I think that in terms of longevity, he possibly goes in there as well. Five years he had at Newcastle. He was signed initially as a development player, but immediately almost became 
uh, a first team player. I remember the the flick at West Brom. I was yep. I was at the stadium that day, and that was that was quite phenomenal finish. And you sh- you saw then the technical ability he had. I think part of what's always held Perez back was the fact that nobody really was really sure his best position was. Was he a striker? Was he a number 10? Was he a left-sided forward? He would play in all those sort of positions and, and rarely did he did he nail one of those down until really two seasons ago where Benitez played him as a number 10. He didn't provide that many assists. He didn't provide that many goals until the latter half of the season. But what he did off the ball, Benitez always says about how intelligent a footballer that he is both on and off the ball. And I think that he was massively underrated. I don't think he's he's in in terms of the very best footballers Newcastle have had over the last 10, 20 years. But I think in terms of what he was able to give to the team, he does rank alongside at just about any player you could have had in that position over, over the last decade. Yes, it will be contentious, but I think he deserves a place. And, you know, they signed a, they signed a player for 1.8 million. They sold him for 30. I know that's not... I know that's not the only way that you judge a footballer, but yeah. second half of last season, he looked like a £30 million footballer, or not, not far off. And, you know, the word that Benitez always used was balance. And then suddenly when they signed Almiron um, at the end of the, of the transfer window, you've got Almiron, you've got Perez, you had Rondon in front of them, and they were a pleasure to watch. You had yeah. this triangle, and suddenly it all made sense. And, you know, that's been part of the narrative of this season, watching, watching Almiron struggle because he hasn't built up uh, that that relationship with the other two people that are kind of around him and yeah. hopefully that's you know we've seen that kind of get better in the last few weeks but suddenly it just kind of clicked last season and it was you know Perez even last season Perez was doing that the goal celebration holding his hand behind his ear because he'd got stick he got stick from Newcastle fans he did yeah and um so again I think yeah I accept I think that this is probably another contentious uh, contentious choice but I think he deserves his place well we'll move on um, and next up on the list is uh, the prodigal son the divine ponytail himself uh, Mr Andy Carroll uh, of course a current Newcastle United player but also a former Newcastle United player as well and I think he's in this team very much based on his prior uh his, his prior exploits in a black and white shirt um, I think this is cheating as well really I can't remember who you were very pro Andy Carroll. I was I mean, pro Andy Carroll. He hasn't. I mean, he doesn't really figure enough in this decade. <laughs> now that I'm looking at when he left, but I I think he's the best that we've had in that time. I mean, in terms of that, I mean, in the championship season in particular, he would be playing every week, and you were watching somebody improve week in week out, and he didn't have a flaw to his game. I mean, he had. I mean, I called him a human wrecking ball, and he was he, on the pitch. He was that. He was, you know, that cliche about big, tall, strong players being unplayable. But yeah. he, he, he caused chaos, and um, I just loved watching him. And you know, one of one one of our own to use that cliche as well. But um, you know, I do wonder what would what would have happened if he'd stayed at Newcastle for another season or two. Um, but in terms of, I mean, in terms of sheer talent, in in terms of sheer presence, Newcastle have not had better, and they've not had different. I mean, they've not had more different to him, if you know what I mean. I mean, I just think that difference that he has. Well, I also think the fact that 
and I know that a lot was made about the fact it's a ridiculous amount of money that Liverpool are paying at the time, but the fact that Liverpool did pay £35 million from at that time tells you how good everyone thought he was at that period. That first half of that Premier League season, I think it was 11 goals or something he scored, and he, he went to remember the game at Arsenal where he scored the header, and he was unplayable. Yeah. When he when he was fully fit at that period in time, there was no other striker like him, and he was. And, and you speak to, to players, who, and they, they say he was the one player I didn't defenders didn't want to play against because yeah. he wouldn't hold anything back, but he did it in a legal sort of way, and and he's, he, he, he is not only very good in the air, but he had a, a bullet of a, of a left foot, yeah. and and he just could score goals in all sorts of ways. And, and yeah, you do. It's almost that nostalgia of wondering what could have happened. Obviously, he's come back. Yeah. and he isn't able to start games yet, and he's had so many injuries. But if you actually that taints what he actually was back then, and nostalgia does play a part. But I actually think that that he he as George says, probably is the, the most all-round forward Newcastle have had over the last decade. I'll, I kind of look back on on Andy Carroll's time with a little bit of a tinge of sadness of what might have been, you know. And he was the kind of number nine that we were crying out for yeah. for years. We wanted that guy. That was that was who we wanted. He came through the academy. He was a local lad. He was a number nine. He was a big, massive wrecking ball of a centre forward, like you said. And that was exactly what we wanted. We got it for, what, a season and a half? Yeah. The season of the championship was absolutely, you know, paramount was development. And then we went into that 2010-11 campaign and for half a year, he was the best. But there was also that, you know, there was the incredible stuff that was going on off the pitch around Carroll as yeah. well. And he was still going out in town, um, you know, a Gateshead lad and had all this adulation thrown at him. And, you know, there was like sort of mayhem. And it was quite, although as a journalist, we're supposed to sort of be very, um, you know, we should be frowning on that kind of thing. And it was creating new stories and a bit too much attention around the club and I can absolutely get that but I also know sort of from experience about that feeling of being on the town as a, as a new I don't sorry I don't know it because I was, I'm a footballer because I wasn't but sort of having been around Keegan's Nobody's team that. no having been around <laughs> Keegan's team and kind of growing growing up around those players seeing it and it's like a very compulsive there was this sort of you know there was this aura of mayhem on the pitch and there was this kind of mayhem off the pitch yeah. but he was brilliant you know yeah. he was brilliant you know that he still got the ability to cause chaos what what we've seen from him so far suggests a lack of mobility and yeah. you know whether whether I mean at the moment he doesn't look equipped to start games so you know we'll have to see how it how it goes but yeah you don't want him to, to just be sort of like a a party trick. Our final player in the 11 um, and we've got uh, Mr. Serb Dringer himself. It's Demba <laughs> Bar. <laughs> Demba Bar who um, joined on a free transfer, was signed as a free agent with his legendary ticking time bomb of a knee. Um, who knows how much we eventually paid for him but I think, let's be honest, he was, he was an absolutely fantastic centre forward for Newcastle in the time he was here. Yeah, we debated this. We had, we had trouble with the forwards because you were Papis more pro CC, I was pro Bar. Yeah, I mean, I think you're probably right. I think Bar, in terms of the limited time that he was here for, you know, was a better striker. Cisse scored those incredible goals against Chelsea, and you know, was here for longer, and and was a, but his record was less good. Was less. What do I mean? Impressive. Less impressive. It, he was. Le- he wasn't. He started really well. Cisse, and then sort of tailed and off. And then it tailed off. Whereas Bar, for the limited time that he was here, was 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 exceptional. Um, I mean, I I suppose I always thought that I'm not sure how much he wanted to be here sort of long term. And I think that sort of taints my memory of him a little bit. 
Um, but he was a great striker. I can appreciate that. But mentioning the strawberry syrup, that is up there with, and this probably says a lot about me, but if you actually watch that interview, I think it's with Jeff Shreves, it is one of the, the funniest interviews in terms of, because you can see, I think Jeff Shreves asks him, uh, tell us a secret about you, and he just goes, he, he sort of looks at him confused, and he goes, syrup, and then you see Jeff Shreves has no idea what's going on, <laughs> and he's like, he's like, I love strawberry syrup, and that just became, and then obviously it was strawberry syrup corner, and all that, sort of yeah. thing. and that, that, I mean, that was, so he became a sort of cult hero as well, so I think there yeah. is that element of that. Why does this say something about you? I don't know. It's just the fact that I found that quite amusing. And oh, okay. <laughs> no, I mean, fine. it got to the point where they were selling Denver Bar strawberry <laughs> syrup in the club shop. Yeah. It's nonsense, isn't it? Let's be honest. It is ridiculous. But, I mean, not not taking anything away from the guy. He, he had a, a, a quite a good, uh, what, 18 months to nearly two seasons here. Um, some of the goals he scored were were fabulous. Uh, the one that stands out for me is the the goal against, I think it was Redden away, mm-hmm. where Czech Teori plays a long ball over his shoulder and he volleys it first time into the net. And like, I, I just love anything like that. You know, it was almost it was almost Bergkamp esque in its in, in its uh, in its finish. I just I love out like that. Me. Well, I also remember <laughs> I remember the the hat trick at Halloween. I was I was up at Edinburgh Uni at the time, and and Newcastle. It was it was the 2011-12 season, and every single week it was like Newcastle haven't played anyone yet. Newcastle haven't played anyone yet, and they went to Stoke, which at the mm. time there was the cliché: you go to Stoke, you're not going to get anything. Uh, it was a nighttime game, and Barr was just. I mean, he took all three. He was just he was just phenomenal, and I think that there was the. Yes, CC came in the second half of that season and sort of got them towards that fifth place and, and Barr got shuffled out to the right and then got moved back the, yeah. the next season. It was accommodating the two of them. But I think when Barr was up front in the first half of that season was I think when Newcastle looked the most complete as a team personally. That's how I felt, just because I think he was more than just a goal scorer. He, he was a bit of an all-right. He was, he was ungainly in a lot of ways and he, he wasn't necessarily a pretty footballer, but I think he was a very good all-round footballer. Absolutely right. We're going to wrap it up there with the uh, with the team of the decade. Is there any honourable mentions that didn't make it in? I mentioned Kevin Nolan. Jonas Gutierrez was name that, that yeah he was very close to me and we had to, to, to leave him out at the, the last minute uh yeah kevin nolan in terms of he wasn't there that long but championship amazing winning captain, captain. Yeah. amazing captain oh, one of the most important captains in newcastle's history i'd say um jose enrique i don't jose think it was enrique. that far away if we'd gone with fullbacks probably D- danny simpson to a degree i suppose i don't think they've been blessed with brilliant fullbacks mm-hmm. in, in all honesty over the last decade which is part of the reason for the formation uh, up front cc as well so cc yeah. cc was was very yeah. close Good stuff. Excellent. Right. So we've uh, got a little bit of time left to talk about. Have we got any upcoming articles on theathletic.co.uk that we can uh, that we can have a look at? Well, a couple of things we've done recently. How about if we talk about that? Um, so I've um, I've had a piece with Steve Howie, um, the former Newcastle and England defender, and the reason that um, the reason I did that is that it's unbelievably it's twenty five years since he made his England debut whilst he was at Newcastle so um, and he's someone that I've known for 25 years so I've written a kind of quite personal piece about that about England um, and just sort of about our our relationship which is kind of quite unusual in the sense that it was a time when uh, Newcastle's training ground was open so journalists could kind of go down every day it was under Kevin Keegan and I was a young snotty-nosed reporter working for a local paper and I went down he was the same kind of age as me and we just hit it off and so this professional relationship developed into a personal one he ended up being uh my best man when I got married um not that that marriage lasted much longer but very long his best man no, he was already no, married. See. No, what happened there, George? He was already married. Um, <laughs> but and we've had this relationship, and some of that relationship has been based around alcohol. Um, 
but we kept in touch when he moved to Man City and I would go down and stay with him and stuff like that. Anyway, I, I wanted to write this piece to sort of celebrate that 25 years. He tells some very funny stories, so people can have a look at that if they like. Wonderful. Chris, what about you? Mine's not quite as uplifting or amusing as George's, unfortunately, but uh, I no was... Surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I was um, at Mansion House in Jesmond uh, not so long ago for what was a very important... Uh, Newcastle City Council planning committee meeting is as boring as that sounds. <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> For, yeah. <laughs> yes, I think that's what everyone would be thinking. That's what I was thinking when I was there. But it was oh. it was very busy, and obviously this is about Strawberry Place and about the fact that planning permission has now been granted. Yeah for next to the stadium f- uh, for four buildings to be built and basically I've, I've written a long piece where I've gone into uh, the lack of transparency that, that some fans feel there is in terms of yeah, how absolutely. Mike Ashley came to, to, to get that land and it was it was part of the club's ownership and it's, it's, it's subsequently been sold on for nine million but also about what that could mean for Newcastle United's future in terms of does it prevent expansion of the Gallagher going forward. How is it affecting the views of St. James's, those iconic views? Um, so basically, yeah, a long read on that and basically just trying to try, trying to deduce as much as possible from that and, and show what that could mean for the club going forward and what could be very important for its long-term future. Chris's piece is kind of very detailed and it's very good because of that, but it's also about the that whole sense of ambition, isn't it? And it's yeah. this that the feeling that there is around the club at the moment that whatever happens on the pitch, this is a club that will forever be limited in terms of ambition because of the ownership. And so that is the sort of backdrop to the story. It's in some ways it's it's a very small story about a piece of land, at, at, you know, that do, isn't attached to the ground, but it also stands for something bigger than that. Yeah. Excellent. Well, you can read all of those pieces and more as well if you go to the athletic.co.uk. Um, make sure you get a, a subscription to that. It's nine ninety nine a month. I believe they've got a special offer on at the minute as well, where it's forty uh, percent off. It's usually special offers. Yeah, the special yeah. offers on all the time, and you can read all of that fantastic uh, sports writing from journalists from all over the country covering all kinds of teams. And there's lots of other stuff on there as well with regards to American sports, basketball, ice hockey. Feel free to have a have a look on uh, theathletic.co.uk. There leaves nothing else for me to say other than, gentlemen, thank you very much for a day. It's been a pleasure. This has been our first pod on the time, uh, and we'll speak to you very soon. Bye.